Welcome to the Wired for Success podcast, your show for ambitious, mission-driven entrepreneurs who understand that there's more to entrepreneurship than finding the latest flash-in-the-pan strategies, who understand that in order to build your empire, you need a solid foundation. I wholeheartedly believe that entrepreneurship is the biggest self-development journey you can be on, and it's my mission to help you make that journey easier. In this show, I bring together the very best from science, self-development and entrepreneurship to set you up for sustainable success. Hi, I'm Claudia Gabbett, the scientist and mindset coach behind this show, and you're listening to the Wired for Success podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Wired for Success podcast, where we talk about all things science, self-development and entrepreneurship that help you get to that next level of success in your life and business. Today, I'm bringing you another brand new interview episode. My guest today is the AI guy, Callum Chase. He's a global keynote speaker on artificial intelligence and the best-selling author of Surviving AI and the Economic Singularity. He's also the co-founder of a think tank focused on the future of jobs called Economic Singularity Foundation. On top of that, he also wrote Pandora's Brain and Pandora's Oracle, a pair of techno thrillers about the first super intelligent uh, intelligence, sorry, and he's a regular contributor to magazines, newspapers, and radio. But before becoming a full-time writer and speaker, Callum had a 30-year career in journalism and in business as a marketer and strategy consultant and, in, and as a CEO. And he also studied philosophy at Oxford University, which confirmed his suspicion that science fiction is actually philosophy in fancy dress. And I love both philosophy and science fiction, and I'm interested in artificial intelligence, so I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Welcome, Callum, and thank you so much for being on my show. Thanks, Claudia. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Callum, I just mentioned you studied philosophy and you worked in journalism and in business. How did you become the AI guy? Uh, simple answer. I retired and uh, then I turned a hobby into a career. Uh, I didn't expect it to happen. I had always been very interested in artificial intelligence because I've always read a lot of science fiction and that's full of AI. And I always thought that AI would one day be incredibly important, but I thought not until probably after I was dead, long after I was dead. And in 1999, I read a book by a man called Ray Kurzweil, a book called Are We Spiritual Machines? And Kurzweil opened my eyes to the power of exponential growth. It was the first time I understood that. Exponential growth is incredibly important, and we should probably talk about it. Um, that made me think, wow, AI is going to be important in my lifetime and certainly in my child's lifetime and everybody else should be thinking about this. So then I uh, started reading much more and started writing about AI and that led to this new career. Right. So what is it about AI that you find most fascinating? It's its potential more than what it can do today, but what it can do already is is very, very impressive. Um Back in 2013, um, a well-known uh, tech investor called Peter Thiel complained that we were promised flying cars and we got 128 characters, by which he meant Twitter. Um, we actually do now have flying cars, but we have something much, much more impressive, which, was, which is we have something very close to omniscience. If you combine Google search and Wikipedia, mm -hmm. then in your smartphone, you've got something very close to omniscience. And I bet if you could bring a Victorian 
Brit or German to the current day and say, what, what's more impressive to you, flying car or omniscience? I'm pretty sure they would say omniscience is more yeah. impressive. Google search, just every day I use it uh, many times and it always amazes me. It amazes me that you can drive from where I live down in, um, uh, in Andalusia to Edinburgh and Google will tell you what time you'll get there. I mean, that's just astonishing. And there are many more miracles that it performs every day. But it's, we are at the beginning of our journey with AI and it's going to get a lot, lot more powerful, a lot more impressive. Yeah, I bet it will. Now, can you maybe give our listeners who might not be that familiar with AI a short introduction into the topic? So what is it and why is it so important at the moment? You also, you already mentioned Google, um, Google search and something like that, but maybe you can um, talk a little bit more about the background. Sure. So it is actually quite hard to explain what artificial intelligence is. Um, if you break it down, it's two words, artificial and intelligence. The artificial bit is easy. It just means something that was created by uh, humans or perhaps by aliens, not by evolution and not by God. So that's artificial. The intelligence bit is the tricky bit because it's about uh, brains and thinking and consciousness and so on. And that's all very mysterious. The best definition I know of it, of intelligence, is goal-directed adaptive behavior. Mm -hmm. Goal-directed adaptive behavior. So... An entity is described as artificial intelligence. If it was created by humans, and it's usually software rather than something physical, and it pursues a goal and it learns and adapts its behavior as it pursues that goal. So that's what AI is. The science of AI dates back to 1956. Um, there was a conference in Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, and that was the beginning of it. It bumped along for many years. Uh, there were very inflated expectations and hopes for it in the early years. Um, they were dashed. They had a couple of AI winters when you couldn't raise any money for it. Then there was a big bang in 2012. And that was when a researcher called Jeff Hinton figured out how to apply a branch of statistics called machine learning to AI. And then very quickly, it started to make money. And since then, Google and Facebook have stolen a lot of the advertising industry from Rupert Murdoch. And personally, I think that's an extremely good thing. And machine learning needs to be explained. So machine learning is a term invented in 1959 to mean algorithms which use data, lots and lots of data, to make models which make predictions or take decisions that they haven't been programmed to do. So that's machine learning. Mm -hmm. And the, the form of machine learning that Hinton got to work was is called deep learning, which is, uh, and I'm trying to keep this as, as simple and unboring as possible. Uh, it's a system, it's, it's, a, it's a process whereby you have a series of layers. Each layer of the system uh, ab abstracts some information from the data it's been given and processes it, and passes the result up to a higher layer, which does the same thing up to a higher layer and up to a higher layer. So for instance, if you've got a, a, a computer vision system, the bottom layer might detect edges and lines. Mm -hmm. The highest layer might detect a face and identify a face. So that's deep learning. Uh, it's essentially a rebranding of something called neural nets. So you'll, see, you'll sometimes hear it described as artificial neural nets. So 2012, big bang, AI becomes very effective, very powerful, but we're still at the beginning. And that's because of exponential growth uh, and the exponential growth in the power of our computers. Right. 
Now, I've seen that you predict two singularities that will be brought about by artificial intelligence. Can you elaborate on what those two singularities are and why you think they will happen? Yeah, so <clears throat> it's it's time to talk a little bit about exponentials to, in order to explain why I think they'll happen. Mm -hmm. So you, you, many of your, your, your listeners will know, your, your viewers will know what exponential growth looks like, but we always forget it. We always um, forget to forget how powerful it is. An exponential growth, exponential to the power of two, is very simple. It just means that the number doubles every particular period. And since the, well, for a long time, computers have doubled their power every 18 months. This is known as Moore's law after one of the co-founders of Intel. And when you double something, the growth is really dramatic and it gets much more dramatic as time goes on. So if you could walk, if you walked 30 normal steps, you would go about 30 meters. If you could walk 30 exponential steps, your first step would be one meter, your second would be two, your third would be four, your fourth would be eight. And your 30th step would take you to the moon and back. And the way that breaks down is really interesting. The 29th step would take you to the moon and your 30th step would bring you all the way back. So every step in an exponential process is equal, is, is equal to the sum of all the previous steps. Mm -hmm. which means that wherever you are on an exponential growth curve, as long as it's continuing, you're actually always at the beginning, which is why I keep saying we're always at the beginning. We're still at the beginning of our AI journey. Um, so that's, that's why we have these remarkable developments have already happened. Um, for instance, this has, it's a fuzzy, but smartphone has more power more compute power than NASA had when they sent Neil Armstrong to the moon in 1969. And in fact, now that's out of date. It's a, a, a decent toaster. A toaster has more power than NASA had when they sent Neil Armstrong to the moon. But we're at the beginning of our journey. And in 30 years and 50 years, we're going to have machines. In 30 years time, if, if Moore's law continues, which it probably will, uh, we'll have machines which are a million times more powerful than the machines we have today. They're going to do astonishing things. Um, I think we'll have these two singularities and we should probably take them one by one, but I'm, I'm conscious that I'm just talking all the time and that's bad behavior on a podcast. So you need to ask me another question before I keep gabbling. <laughs> okay, so my question would be, you said that today a good toaster has more compute power than NASA when they sent Neil Armstrong to the moon, which is definitely super impressive, but computing power alone doesn't automatically make a machine super intelligent, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, a toaster today is still a toaster and it doesn't start a meaningful conversation with me in the morning. So maybe we need to come back and define what intelligence really means in this context. So is artificial intelligence in this context really limited to machine learning and pattern recognition? That's a very good, very good point and a very good question. You're absolutely right. Just having tons of brute compute power doesn't give you intelligence. Uh, you need data. You need lots of really good data. Uh, there's, there's a lot of data around, but a lot of it is not usable. And so uh, companies and research organizations spend a lot of time cleaning the data, organizing the data, wrangling the data and getting it to be usable. And you need algorithms um, and smart people get paid a lot of money to write new algorithms, which create these models. What the compute power is, it's an enabler. It's like um, fuel for a car, if you like. Uh, it's great having a, a marvelous Mercedes, but if you've got no fuel, it won't get you anywhere. Um, so. The compute power is an, an enabler for these algorithms and the data 
to create intelligence. As I said earlier, intelligence is essentially uh, the ability to, uh, to, to adapt your behavior, to make your behavior more optimal uh, as, as you explore the, the, the problem space of, of a goal that you're looking to, looking to, uh, to solve. So with this amazing compute power that we're going to have, I think that in possibly 20 to 40 years is my expectation, we'll have the first of these two singularities. I should explain what a singularity is. It's simply really a metaphor for the biggest kind of change you can have. It's a term borrowed from mass and physics, and it was first applied to uh, human affairs by John von Neumann, who was the, one of the fathers of modern computing. So a singularity is simply a really, really big change. It's bigger than a revolution, bigger than, a, bigger than digital transformation or anything like that. And the first one I expect to see, um, I mean, I hope to be around to see it, in, in 20 to 40 years is the economic singularity. Mm-hmm. And that's when something which has been widely discussed, I think will happen. It's widely dismissed at the moment. That is the possibility of machines taking over our jobs. Now, people keep saying that this won't happen because in the past, automation hasn't caused uh, widespread massive human unemployment, which is true. It hasn't. Uh, It did cause massive widespread unemployment for horses. Uh, In 1915, there were 21 and a half million horses working in America. And the horse population in America now is 2 million. That's pretty severe technological unemployment. It hasn't caused human unemployment because machines in the past, automation in the past, has simply replaced muscle jobs and humans had another skill, which is our cognitive skill. But machines are increasingly doing or uh, cognitive tasks. So we have machines now which can drive cars. They're being tested very, very cautiously and they're being rolled out very, very slowly, which is entirely sensible. It'd be foolish to roll them out faster. But there are, uh, Google has a spin out called, called Waymo, which has got cars Uh, driverless taxis in Phoenix, Arizona, members of the public in the back, and there was nobody in the front. And they've had that going for a month, uh, for for a year. Um, They're now starting to roll it out on San Francisco, initially with the driver in the front or a backup driver in the front, and then they will take that driver out. So we have machines which can drive cars. Uh, We have machines which can read scripts and actually write their own scripts to some extent in call centers. And this is going to increase. We have machines which deliver things to people in warehouses. In warehouses, 15 years ago, people used to go to a shelf, get something and bring it back to the packing station and wrap it up. Now they don't move. The, the machines go and get the, the object from the rack and they bring it to the human at the packing station. The only thing that the machines can't currently do is do the final wrapping. And it'll take five to 10 years for that problem to be solved. And then they can turn the lights out in the warehouses and there'll be no humans working there maybe more than five years, but you know that, that's coming. So machines are going to replace more and more of our jobs. Some people think that we will continue to invent new jobs, which machines can never do. I think when machines are a million times more powerful than they are today, I think we're gonna run out of things that they can't do. So I think that in 30 years time, machines will do most of the jobs that humans could do for money. And I think that can be really good news because a world in which machines do all the jobs should be a world in which humans do whatever we want to do. We behave like aristocrats in years gone by. We play, we learn, we travel, we study, we socialize, and we do what humans should do, which is not go to an office for nine to five every day. Um, So that's the economic singularity. There's various other things that are going to happen around about that time. We will probably stop growing cows for meat. We'll we'll be consuming plant-based meat and 
uh, lab-grown meat from cells, so we can use the land we have much more efficiently, much more sensibly. I think uh, AI will help extend our lifespans quite considerably by that time as well. So some really major changes are coming around about the time of the economic singularity. And then very briefly, I'll be very brief about this. Some point further on, I think somewhere between 70 to 100 years probably, but that's a wild guess, we will create an artificial general intelligence. And that is a machine with all the cognitive abilities of an adult human. And that is going to be the most important event in human history so far, bar none. Nothing will equal that. Because at that point, now this is going to sound crazy, and I apologize in advance. <laughs> when we create an artificial general intelligence, and it quickly goes on to become a super intelligence because machines can be improved in ways we can't, we will either become godlike or will go extinct. I think really those are the two alternatives for us. It's quite a long way into the future. We have a lot of time to figure out how to make sure we get the good outcome. And personally, I'm very excited about it because I think we will have the good outcome. And I think our future is going to be astonishing in great ways. That's so fascinating. Now I will come back to parts of what you just said. But I guess for me, the big question that we really need to address is what are the moral and ethical implications when artificial artificial intelligence takes over more and more of our jobs and impacts our world in unprecedented ways. So let's take the example of self-driving cars, for instance. So how does an AI system make decisions when it's not faced with a black and white scenario? So of course, uh, there are probably a general premises like avoid any accidents, right? But what if it encounters a situation where it can't prevent an accident and it has to choose whether to save the driver or the small kid running onto the street or take the old trolley problem. Is it okay to sacrifice one person to save five others? I mean, what could a decision tree look like for an artificial intelligence when it's facing these kind of scenarios? Yeah. Um, surprisingly, perhaps, the people developing self-driving cars don't spend much time thinking about that because they're completely unrealistic problems. You know, um, I bet none of your viewers have ever faced the choice between running over a child or killing themselves or running over a child or damaging their car. Uh, those, those sorts of choices just don't crop up. The choice you have is there's an accident coming, slam the brakes on. Now, what a machine will do is react a lot faster than a human. So the number of accidents that happen will be way, way reduced because the machines just react a lot faster. Also, machines are not, their decision-making isn't influenced by emotions in the way ours is. Uh, you know, humans get angry with each other. They get tired. Uh, they get lazy. They get, they get uh, drunk sometimes. And those influences make us less good drivers than we otherwise should be. We're actually not bad drivers. You know, we, we kill 1.35 billion people every year with road accidents, which sounds terrible, but there's, there's actually an awful lot of driving going on. So we're really not that bad. Most humans drive for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of miles before they have a fatal accident they have on average. But we do kill 1.35 million people every year and we should stop doing that and machines will do, will kill far, far fewer, uh, quite possibly none. Machines will drive um, rather tediously. They'll probably obey the law, which is a, a rather dreadful prospect, really. Um, boring prospect. And 
they will react much faster to potentially dangerous situations. They won't get themselves into dangerous situations, they'll react much faster. And if something bad is going to happen, they'll just slam on the brakes. They won't have to make the choice between running over the child and, and damaging the car. That, that sort of situation, frankly, doesn't arise. But what if slamming on the brakes means the car behind that car is going to crash into them? So. I mean, there are those kinds of situations where they can't really prevent the accident from happening. But what what is it going to choose? Is it going so, to crash into the car before it or allow the other car to crash into it from behind? Yeah, yeah. So, so it will break as fast as it can. And that is really going to be the only choice it has. It's going to break to avoid the collision. And the car behind is going to be self-driving as well. So it's going to do the same thing. It's going to actually receive the signal and process and act on the signal in, you know, without the delay that a human brain imposes. Um, signals travel within human brains quite slowly because we are an electrochemical machine, whereas uh, in, inside computers, signals travel at the speed of light. In our, in our brains, signals travel partly at the speed of light in the electrical part, and then there's a chemical... Uh, there are molecules that have to jump across synapses and that slows everything down. So signals travel within machine brains uh, at, I think it's a million times faster than within human brains. So they will react much quicker, including the car behind. So, okay, you know, thanks. because because machines will be rather boring and obey the laws and because they don't get cross and drunk and tired and so on, there will be very, there'll be far, far fewer accidents. Okay, so we shouldn't be worried about the ethical and moral implications that could arise? Not, not of self-driving cars. There are lots and lots of ethical considerations. Well, um, I'm a bit dubious about the word ethic because it, it, it leads people to get uh, moralistic. Um, there are lots of considerations about how to make AI beneficial. Mm -hmm. um, there are lots of potential uses for AI which are very unbeneficial. A, any, ta any technology can have good or bad uses, a hammer, can have good or bad uses. Fire and, and, and moving water can have good or bad uses. And the more powerful te technology is, the more uh, impact, both beneficial or, or bad, it can have. AI can have really bad impacts. And a, a classic example is killer robots. Um, it is a terrifying prospect that a terrorist group or even a disgruntled teenager mm -hmm. could get hold of uh, a swarm of very small killer drones and program it to assassinate all the people that they don't like. You know, that's a, that's a horrible world in which that's going to be possible. And the technology will be invented because you just can't stop these things being invented and, and governments will deploy them. Um, what you don't want is them getting out into the wider public. You don't want proliferation. And Lots of very smart people are working on that problem. I don't know what the solution is, but we're, we're working on it. There's all sorts of other questions that get raised about privacy and transparency, you know, whether we can understand what these machines are, are deciding for us, um, how much we want, how, how many of our life-changing decisions we want made by a computer. To say that a computer system will decide what time the lights come on in a city at, at dusk, that's not something that we would worry about, you know, humans losing their sense of agency because that machine was that decision was taken by a computer. Um, but a decision about who goes to jail or a decision about who gets what house, those sorts of decisions, we probably want to keep humans in the loop. 
on those decisions. So there's lots of those sorts of debates to have. Uh, they will be very granular because they'll change from place to place, circumstance to circumstance. And we're just gonna have to have lots of those discussions, which is the way it always is. When you in introduce a new technology, you have to have lots of conversations about how to use it. When the telephone was introduced, mm. people couldn't figure out for the first few years, do you phone somebody at dinner time? You know, you might be interrupting their dinner. Do you phone them after dinner? Do you phone them in the afternoon? What do you say when you phone somebody? Uh, do you always have to pick up the phone? We, it took years before those sorts of etiquette decisions were made. That's a fairly trivial example. We'll have much more severe examples than that with AI. But then there's the really, really big ones. The things I've talked about so far are not at the following scale. The scale of how do we adapt our economy to a world in which machines are doing all, their, all the jobs? Uh, because obviously if machines are doing all the jobs then humans haven't got any income so how do we manage that yeah. and then how do the really really big one the, the one that really counts is how do we make sure that the arrival of the first super intelligence on the planet how do we make sure that's safe and that's why I wrote two novels about that because I think that's that's the biggest question humans are likely to face ever mm, yeah definitely interesting times ahead mm. uh, Another area that I can't really imagine artificial intelligence taking over is other areas that require a lot of emotional and social intelligence. For instance, I can't really picture an artificial kindergarten teacher or an artificial poet or an artificial social worker. So what's your opinion on that? Do you think AI could be developed in such a way that it could become competent in those areas too? Absolutely. And in fact, it's already happened. Uh, the leading natural language processing system and natural language processing is when a machine absorbs some information expressed in natural language processes it and then gives a result back in natural language the leading one of those is called gpt3 uh, produced by a company called open ai in california co-founded by elon musk it writes poetry and believe it or not the poetry is not bad um, so i'm told i'm not i'm not much of a fan of poetry uh, it writes articles it writes um beginnings of novels it, it you know it goes wrong it's buggy but again we're always we're still at the beginning of the journey um there are teaching assistants in the world where the students university students who are using the teaching assistant online uh they couldn't tell it wasn't a human um so machines can emulate the behavior of humans in ways which which are surprising uh they can emulate our emotion affected behavior they can't feel emotions themselves because they're not conscious or at least we believe they're not conscious we strongly believe that they're that's, not conscious that's the next thing i wanted to ask you about um consciousness so do you think artificial intelligence is bound to become conscious at some point and would that be a good or a, or a bad thing in your opinion yeah we don't know uh we we don't really know what consciousness is i mean we we do in this in the subjective sense consciousness by definition, is, is, the, is the personal experience, mm -hmm. just that, our personal experience, the fact that I'm looking at a screen and you're on it, the fact I'm, I can look out the window, the fact what, what I hear, that, that's consciousness. We don't know how that arises. I mean, we believe firmly that it arises from the physical processes going on in our brains, uh, but we, we don't know exactly the connection between the two, and we don't know the connection between intelligence and consciousness. We have an intuition and probably more than an intuition 
that the more intelligent a species is, the more powerful its consciousness is. So, you know, I think there wouldn't be many people who would disagree with the proposition that a dog has more consciousness than a worm. Mm -hmm. And a dolphin probably has more consciousness than most dogs. And, and, and a, a, an adult human and a child as well uh, has a more intense consciousness than a dog. I think most people would agree with those propositions and would probably also agree that intelligence scales between those species in the same way. So they seem to be connected. And it may well be that consciousness is simply an emergent property of sufficient intelligence and sufficient amount of information processing, but we don't know. Would it be a good thing? Uh, so, okay, so here I have to reveal my true lunacy, the true scale of my <laughs> absolute craziness. I think that the best future for humans is to create conscious super intelligent machines and then to upload ourselves into them. I think that um, being human is pretty cool. Um, I've enjoyed my time being a human, but to be superhuman, to be a million times smarter than we are today, and to be able to travel between the stars because we wouldn't be limited to these fleshy bodies which don't work very well in space, um, to be able to comprehend what's going on at all points of the earth at the same time would be very exciting. I'd like that. <laughs> and I think it might be possible if we create super intelligences and upload ourselves into them so that we merge with them. So to answer your question directly, potentially, I think creating a conscious super intelligent machine would be a very good thing. Of course, if it doesn't like us, then it would be a very bad thing. And that's, that's why I say that's the very big question that humans, uh, that's the biggest questions humans will probably ever have to tackle. Oh, that's fascinating. Now, based on what you just said, how can we all prepare for a future that is more and more shaped by artificial intelligence? If you think that robots will take over all of our jobs at some point, what advice would you want to give to young people who are about to decide what to do career-wise? Yeah. So first of all, I'd say it's extremely unlikely that this economic singularity where machines take all our jobs is going to happen in the next decade or two decades. It's going to be longer than that. So uh, we've all got time to prepare. Mm -hmm. And I suppose I say two things. Firstly, AI is not going away. It's going to become more and more powerful, more and more important. So the first thing everybody ought to do is quite frankly, to buy my books and learn about what AI is and, you know, what learn, Get, get themselves up to the speed up to speed with the discussion about where it's taking us all. So I think that's probably the first thing. But slightly less cynically, um, what should people study? For a while, when it became apparent how important AI was going to be, for a while, everybody said, well, we, we should all learn STEM subjects because AI is computing and computing is all about maths and statistics. But then it was realized, well, actually, machines can do a lot of the things. You know, machines can already write code incredibly. So maybe that's not the answer. Maybe the answer is to, is to specialize in the things that machines can't do. And what machines can't do is be conscious and they can't empathize. So study the humanities and become um, the most sort of human that you can be. But actually it turns out machines are very good at emulating uh, emotional and empathetic behavior. So I think the real answer is study what you're interested in. Mm. You know, by the time most of us have to make those decisions, We know the kind of thing we like. We like science fiction or we like uh, sewing or we like history or we like uh, cooking or we like traveling. 
And we should study what we're interested in because it's only if you're interested in what you're studying that you'll do good, do well at it. It's only if you enjoy your work that you'll do it well. So don't worry too much about what AI and other technologies will uh, enable jobs to, to happen in, um, but pursue the things that interest you. That's always a good, a good thing to do. Now, I want to come back to something you said earlier, which is, um, so if robot took, if robots took over all of our jobs and as humans were free to live a life of leisure, you said, you said you think that would be a good idea because it enables us to be free and do whatever we like. But I actually think this could lead to a massive increase in depression as people lose their direction and purpose in life. Because so many people define their life purpose by the job that they do. And yes, they might complain a lot about their work, but take the work away from them and they will complain even more. They will feel replaceable and their life will feel shallow and meaningless. So people, I think in general, people need challenges. They need to struggle to grow as a person. And yes, it's uncomfortable and yes, they will complain, but in the end, they can look back at those challenges and see how they help them become stronger. So I really wonder what would happen if we took all that struggle away from them. What do you think? <laughs> I agree with you completely that we need challenges, uh, we need goals, we need projects, we need work. Humans need work. Maybe in the future we won't, maybe we'll genetically modify ourselves uh, or uh, modify our, our brain processes so that we don't, but at the moment we do. But that doesn't mean, mean we need jobs. And there are three categories of people who I think prove pretty conclusively you don't need a job to have a meaningful life. One of them is aristocrats. Uh, for centuries, most of them didn't have jobs, um, and that there was no great tidal wave of existential despair among aristocrats. They had the best lives of anybody in their society. Uh, the second group is comfortably off retired people. Um, and I can tell you from experience that retiring when you can afford to retire is great fun. I recommend it. <laughs> retiring when you're dirt poor is no fun at all. I don't recommend that. And then the third category is children. Have you ever seen a child who said, I need a job because I haven't got any meaning in my life? <laughs> Children can find meaning in uh, an ant crawling across a floor. Humans are really good at find meaning in things, uh, finding meaning in things. We find meaning in becoming the best golfer we can be and becoming the best painter, the best uh, travel writer. You know, there's loads of things we can do. We don't need jobs in order to have work. We do need work in order to have fun. True. Now, last but not least, where can our listeners find you online if they're interested in learning more about you and your work? Uh, I'm most active on Twitter, at CC Callum. Uh, I'm quite uh, opinionated and mouthy on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> I have a blog, which I do a very poor job of keeping up to date. That's at www.pandoras-brain.com. Uh, but I would recommend my books, really. That, that I, I think there is... Um, a, reason, a reasonably good introduction to what, where I, AI is today and how it got there and where it's going in the future. So as you kindly mentioned at the beginning, surviving AI and the economic singularity. Uh, I think they're, I've, I've recently updated them. They're in their third edition. So they're, I think they're worth a punt. Perfect. Thank you so much, Callum, for these fascinating insights. They're definitely food for thought. So, Thanks, Claudio. It was fun. Take care and talk to you soon. Bye. Bye-bye.
Thank you so much for listening to the Wired for Success podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you did, please take a sec to rate and review my show. It would mean the world to me because you'd help me reach more entrepreneurs like yourself who would love this show. If you'd like to learn more about creating a widely successful business without sacrificing your health, relationships or sanity, make sure to stick around and subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And why don't you help me spread the word and share this show with your friends? I'd really appreciate it and I'm sure your friends will too. Want to continue this conversation, build real relationships and join a community of like-minded entrepreneurs? Come join my free Facebook community for visionary entrepreneurs. I would love to see you there. In the meantime, if you haven't done so already, grab my free brain priming audio file for entrepreneurs and start priming your brain for success in less than five minutes each morning. Curious? You can learn more about how this works and download the audio file at www.wiredforsuccess.solutions. Until next time, bye.